0: What we have is to plan for that Saturday picnic on October twentieth. Sign up sheets are back in the in the uh, fellowship hall. How shall a young man cleanse his way by taking heed thereto, according to thy word? Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we need to be spiritually prepared. Whenever we are getting into the word, in fact, throughout the day, we need to keep short accounts. We need to confess sin if necessary in order to make sure that we are walking by the Spirit. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer and then i will open in prayer let's pray our father we are encouraged from scripture that you are the god who planned out human history you declared the end from the beginning and that human history is the outworking of your plan and that as we look at the chaos around us, we know that in your plan there is a purpose, that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to your purpose, that you are the king of the heavens, the ruler of the earth, and that all that takes place is either under your directive or permissive will. And, Father, as we watch these things go past and we are concerned about our future we can only think about what it must have been like to have been an Israelite in the late or late 600s, early 500s BC, to watch the encroaching power of Babylon and knowing what the Word taught and having to be prepared that no matter what, we must walk with you. Our Father, we pray that as we study about the church tonight, that we may come to a Better understanding of why we do things the way we do things, and that we may understand for the guidance that you've given us in your word. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen. Okay, we're in 1 Peter chapter 5, looking at the first couple of verses. And in these verses, along with a passage that we looked at last week in Acts chapter 20, verses uh, Uh, 19 and down to 28, uh, we have a clear reference to certain leaders in the church, and we've been studying this in terms of understanding how God has revealed to us through the word how the church is to be led, and what we've seen as we came to the end last time was that this has developed into basically three different forms of government historically, And I made the comment that I've operated in two of them. And frankly, uh, I don't get too caught up with one or the other because I have been under bad forms of both and under good forms of both. And if you have spiritually mature men leading in the church, then all of the functions get covered and everything works great. If you have spiritually immature and arrogant men leading in the church, then you have problems. And it doesn't really matter what they're called. What matters is either their ability to uh, walk with the Lord and serve Him or not. So uh, I personally don't get too uh, caught up in uh, determining that one is the precise form or another. I think a lot of uh, people have backed off into their corners and taken positions that better left fighting over other issues but that's my view so what we've seen is that there's three key words that are used in first peter four i mean five one and two same as what we have in um, in acts 20 we have elders the term presbyteros literally means someone who is older but in these contexts just as it did in the Jewish church, and one of the things that's impressed me in my study this time is how much these terms have a root in the Old Testament as well as in the developed practice of the synagogue. We have to remember, and we've gone through Acts, and we've seen that Acts has this transitional nature to it that, as I pointed out last time, when Acts talks about the leadership of the Jerusalem church, the terms that are used are the apostles and the elders. There's no mention of deacons. When we get later literature, there's Paul talks about appointing elders and appointing deacons, actually appointing overseers or bishops and appointing deacons. And so we understand there's, there's transition here The church itself is in transition. When they're meeting early in Acts, they don't have their own facilities. They're not meeting in buildings or churches. They're going to the temple. They're going to synagogues. uh, And they're meeting in homes. And so you would have leaders that were over each group that met in the homes. And those would be probably termed elders. We don't know because we don't have specific statements. so that's that's what we're looking at, is what what are the guidelines? What are the parameters that are set forth here? Presbyteros comes out of that Old Testament framework. The elders of the nation, these would be the leaders, and they are usually older. They are men who have gone through life and seen experience. I pastored a church in Irving, Texas, in from 1986 until 1990 maybe it was not 85 to 90 and we had elders it was a decent elder they, they had elders and they had deacons and that was fine and it worked out really well but they weren't really mature i don't think any of those men that were designated as elders should have been elders that's one of the concerns that I often raise when we have some people come along and say, "Well, well," and I know of some pastors who changed their government and their churches in, in recent years. And I've known it all through the time I've been I've been a pastor. And I say, "Well, the problem that we have is that none of those guys were mature enough. I only had two people in that church that were over 38. And now that I'm on the north side of 60." Well, on the north side of sixty, you know, I look back, and I, especially when, when today's crop of millennials that are coming up, I, I, I think there was a greater maturity among thirty years old, thirty year old spiritually, and a greater sense of service and involvement. What I saw in my generation at that time than what we see today, and that's just not my observation. I think a lot of people. Uh, a lot of baby boomers make that same observation. It's not just because we're older; it's because uh, the culture's changed. And I think probably my parents' generation would have been much different. If you think about my parents' generation, was the Depression and World War II generation? Those men that were when they were in their thirties, I think back to my dad when he was in his thirties. He had he had uh, gone through World War II. My uncle had gone through World War II. The things that they had seen and experienced in that crucible matured them far beyond their their normal years. But we have a generation now that's coming up that that isn't that way. And I'm not saying that just to sort of be be critical of, of millennials. I'm pointing out that culture changes. And that's been true all through history, that there are different circumstances and situations that mature people faster in some times than in other times. And so the emphasis in presbyteros is on that element of maturity and spiritual maturity, part of which only comes with time and with experience. And you just can't get past that. Shepherd is a command here, poimeno. What does it mean to shepherd? We'll get to that and start developing that biblically later tonight. And then the third term, the verb form is here, escapeo, which means to manage or to oversee, has an over-management or administrative aspect. It doesn't mean the pastor is the administrator, but that he oversees to make sure the administration Gets done. So we see these are all, these terms are all used of the same person. That's important to understand. So as we've developed our understanding of the church, we ask these questions terminology. When did the church begin? How did leadership develop in the early church as described in Acts? How did leadership develop in the early centuries of the church age? And as part of that, tonight we'll start looking at what are the three basic forms of church government. Fifth, what are the scriptural terms used for biblical leaders? We'll start developing that a little bit too. And then sixth, we'll get into roles of deacons and elders or pastors, bishops, and seventh, how many elders should there be? Getting into the question of single leadership versus multiple leadership. So, just in in summary, you've got um, ecclesia, basic term for assembly. It referred to a political assembly. It would refer to any group that gathered together. In the Old Testament, it referred to Israel in their assembly as the as the Israelites, as the twelve tribes but it doesn't have the same sense as it does once you get into the New Testament as the church. Then it became a technical term where Christ is viewed as uh, as the head of the church universal. It is called the body of Christ. When we talk about when the church began... We recognize that, first of all, the church did not exist in the Old Testament because according to Ephesians 3, 2 through 6, it was a mystery. It was previously unrevealed truth, so it wasn't known. Second, Jesus spoke of building the church as future. In Matthew 16, 18, he says, I will build my church. It's a future thing. It's not a present thing. It wasn't in existence at that point. Third, the church, we saw that the church could not begin until after Christ's death and resurrection, according to Acts 20, 28. And we saw that the leadership and communication gifted leaders, okay, that's an important issue. We'll come back and talk about the exegetical issues in Ephesians 4, 8 through 11 later, but they aren't given until Christ ascends. Fifth. Uh, references that indicate a beginning at Pentecost are in Acts 5.14 and Acts 2.47. Something happened on the day of Pentecost. And what was it? That's point six, is when the Spirit descends, when you have the baptism by the Holy Spirit, which is for every believer, and every believer is indwelt by the Spirit, that's when the church age began. Not in Acts 9, not at the end of end of Acts, not with the salvation of Paul or... Uh, The expansion, it began when the baptism by the Spirit began. That deals with all the objections by the ultra or hyper dispensationalists. And then a seventh thing to note is that four groups received this gift independently in Acts, each at the hand of an apostle, demonstrating that the apostles are the foundation of the church. You have the Jews in Acts 2, you have the uh, Samaritans in Acts 7, and then the Gentiles in Acts 11, and then Old Testament saints in Acts 19. That brings them all together into the one body of Christ. And what happens at the Samaritan Pentecost and the Gentile Pentecost, and when the uh, disciples of John the Baptist are saved... Uh, because they understand that Jesus the Messiah has come in Acts 19. Each of them receives the baptism by the Holy Spirit at that point, even though it's only mentioned in, uh, in three of them. So the next thing we looked at is how did leadership develop in the early church as described in Acts? And you don't have this revelation that comes down and with the church constitution saying you're going to have a pastor or you're going to have a, a panel of elders or you're going to have deacons and that you set them up this way and that they function this way and this is your organizational flowchart, and this is who's, who's in charge and who's not in charge. Um, you don't have that. It develops with the progress of revelation so that the early leadership or the leadership of the early church resided in the apostles again and again it refers to things related to the apostles then in the second point we got to act six they, there was difficulty they couldn't oversee all the details they couldn't they were receiving complaints that the hellenistic jewish widows were not being properly taken care of and so they developed uh, a division of labor. They appointed seven men. They are recommended by the congregation, as it were, by the believers, and they appoint them and set them over the administration of the uh, uh, to the widows in, of the uh, Hellenistic Jews. Then, following that, just tracing it through, what we see is that Acts talks about the apostles and the elders. Doesn't mention doesn't mention deacons we have passages such as Acts 14.23. We'll come back later to talk about uh, this issue when they had appointed elders in every church. That's the clear statement that there may have been more than one in each church, but it's not a mandate. It is what they did, and we don't know why they did that. Now, if you're coming at this from a preloaded presbyterian background you're going to say well that's because god wants multiple elders in every church but that's not what the you're reading that into that text um it's it it doesn't it deteriorates or changes so rapidly before john is dead you've got the rise of the single single bishop who is one of the elders and he's the key leader so uh, it, it's not something that is de- mandated, and I'll show you some arguments against that as we go along. Acts 15.2, it's apostles and elders. Acts 15.4, apostles and elders. Acts 15.6, apostles and elders. And Acts 15.22, uh, apostles and elders. Acts 15.23, apostles, the elders and the brethren. So you clearly have these elders. Now, if we'll learn more about them as we get into the passages in Timothy and Titus. We looked at the passage in Acts 20, 17 and Acts 20, 28 that uh, reiterates the same thing. This is the other key passage. I think I misspoke and said Acts twenty nineteen earlier, but this is a passage that's parallel to 1 Peter 5, 1 and 2. You have elders, which is the predominant name given the leadership in a local church. But is this talking about one local church, or is it talking about Ephesus, which was quite large, having multiple congregations, or which would entail multiple pastors, and so all of these different pastors would have come down to meet with Paul? I think that is much more likely. Acts 20.28 20, says that they were made overseers, by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit uh, raises up leaders ultimately in the church, and their mission, their task, their purpose is to shepherd the church of God. Again, we have to look at what it means to shepherd. So we have these three terms. Elder describes the office with reference to spiritual maturity. So it's describing the spiritual maturity of the individual uh, the bishop describes the function of the office, and pastor talks about his spiritual gift and role, which is to feed the sheep through teaching. That's the primary aspect of the of the metaphor. So what are the three basic forms of church government? Last time, I talked about the first form, or started to, and this is uh, what was known as the episcopal was known as the episcopal form of government from the greek word uh, episkopos episkopos for a for translated overseer or bishop that becomes known and this is the earliest form of government for those who do not hold to an episcopal form of government their criticism is or excuse me let me i was getting that backwards for those who hold to the Episcopal form of government, they will say that those who hold to congregational government or to uh, elder rule or Presbyterian government are Johnny-come-latelys, that no one held those views until the Reformation. So they would argue rightly from history that for 1,500 years or 1,400 years, the church operated under a uh, an Episcopal form of government. But it moves beyond a, what I would call a simple Episcopacy in the early church, which would mean a single pastor or single leader in the church as the ultimate focal point to uh, these other things. And part of that has to do, you, you, what, what gets blended into this is you get into questions of interpretation. You get They don't have a closed canon yet in in the early church. Uh, where are they coming up with these ideas? You know lots of questions that gets raised, uh, and it 's not clear and clean cut so we 're looking at this three basic forms of government. The three forms are the episcopal form, which will talk about the pastor as the bishop. that becomes a term uh, and they 're equated in the early church through the medieval church, and up even past the reformation you 'll find that. Equated in in uh, many Anglican circles, it develops by the third century to an, a hierarchy that goes beyond the local church, so that you get the development. Uh, the bishop becomes more than the pastor, and then there's an archbishop, and then there's the cardinal or in the and it, cardinals, and then the pope in the Western Church, in the Roman Church, in the Eastern Church, in the uh, what we what is called the Greek Orthodox, are or any of the Eastern Orthodox churches. There's the Patriarchate, and you have patriarchs over each national uh, church. So you have a patriarch over Greece, over uh, other areas. Now the Russian is the largest Orthodox um, uh, church denomination in in the world. But they don't believe in a single head of the church visible on the earth, like the Pope. That's one reason that the Eastern Church split from the Western Church in the in the eleventh century was because over issues of authority who Who has the ultimate authority in over all the Christian churches? So we'll start looking at the Episcopal Church. And this was developed very early by the late first century where you begin to see the terminology shift. As I pointed out last time, uh, the terminology began to shift uh, late first century, early second century to refer to the leader of the church, to refer to that elder, bishop, pastor, person as the bishop. Okay, the uh, Episcopos. You had uh, references, I pointed these out last time, uh, from Polycarp's letter, who seemed to reference bishops and elders as being the same people in his epistle to the Philippians that's dated around 110 to 150. But also about that same time, you have references by Uh, Ignatius of Antioch, where he refers to bishops as distinct from the presbyters and the deacons. And so those are all written at about the same time. So that's already in shift and transition at that time. Now, when we look at the Scripture... The Scripture uses this term, Episkopos, in two pa- key passages. The first is in 1 Timothy 3.1, which we'll go to in a minute, and the other is in Titus one seven. Now, in both passages, Paul is directing Timothy and Titus to appoint elders, and that is often taken as a model that... that against congregational involvement or voting uh for the elder or pastor and i think wrongly because in my reading and my understanding of what's going on in the apostolic period and with paul is these are his his men they are his representatives they're they're not functioning on their own authority they are representatives of paul's apostolic authority the term that is used is apostolic legates. A legate is like an ambassador or representative. That's a term that is still used today to refer to a representative to the American Catholic, Roman Catholic Church from the uh, Pope in Rome. So they're apostolic legates. They had an authority that wasn't in them as a local Pastor or leader, but as representatives from Paul, and with directions from him. But what we see in Titus one seven is this statement: for a bishop, an episcopas, must be. And notice, he's blameless. He's a steward of God. He's a uh, he is a manager. He's to administer, administer the church of God. He's not self will. He's not quick tempered. He's not given to wine. Uh, That means he's not a drunk, Uh, he doesn't have a problem with alcohol, he's not violent, he's not greedy for money. But that comes in a context. And in this slide, what I'm pointing out is that in Titus one five, Paul says, "...for this reason I left you in Crete, giving him orders that you should set in order the things that are lacking." Paul had to move on, but he left Titus in charge, representing Paul's apostolic authority, and so he is the one who was to appoint elders. So this is a unique situation; it's not a pattern for the rest of the church that elders are appointed without congregational involvement. Because what we saw when we went through Acts is that, for example, in the selection of leaders, that there is a an emphasis on on the congregation. And well, we'll come back next time and look at some more passages on that uh, because there's a good support for it in Scripture that, that there is a significant role within the each church where there's a certain responsibility and authority given to the congregation in the selection of leaders and also in carrying out uh, and enforcing uh, church discipline. So, for this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. And then he lists these characteristics. He's blameless, husband of one wife. He has faithful children, uh, not accused of dissipation or insubordination. For a bishop. So, it starts off with an explanation. For a bishop. What he means by that is that here the term bishop is a synonym for the elder he is the overseer so the it, it's the same same person it's the same office now when he's appointing elders in every city some come along and say see you had multiple in every city well, you could have multiple leaders in possibly in every church, but you would have more than one congregation. This is early on. They don't have their own individual buildings. They met in homes. So these are the leaders that are being appointed, what we would call, I believe, the pastor uh, in every city. And then after that, it talks about them in the singular. That's the same thing we see when we get over to 1 Timothy 3, one. In 1 Timothy 3, 1 and following, we see the qualifications, and I'll come back later in our study, and we'll talk about qualifications of the, of the elder and the, and the bishop. But here, he says, that it's a faithful saying, if a man desires the position of a bishop, He desires a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, and good behavior, hospitable, able to teach. What we see in, in 1 Timothy 3 is only two leaders mentioned. One is the bishop, the episkopos, and the other comes in in verse 8, and that's the deacon. Those are the only two offices that are mentioned. The other thing I want you to notice here is that when it talks about the bishop, the bishop is in the singular. It doesn't talk about the bishop in terms of a plural. Now, that might be just because it's taking it as sort of a case study, but what's interesting is if you look down to verse 8, when it talks about the deacon, it doesn't say, likewise, a deacon must be. Says deacons must be. It's a noticeable shift from plural, from singular to plural. Now, you, what you have today is a lot of people will come along and say, "Well, see, that's just a stylistic shift." Well, wait a minute. If we really believe in the plenary inspiration of Scripture, and the verbal, the verbal inspiration of Scripture, then when it shifts from singular to plural, it, that's just not Paul saying, "Well, I think I'm going to use." Plurals this time instead of singulars because it's uh, we need a little stylistic shift so people won't get bored now that's th- that that's a rule for English writing, but it's not wasn't a rule for writing the scriptures. So here we have uh, and if you read through the whole section of both of them, you'll notice that the bishop section from one through seven always talks about the elder, whether it's in talking about him with reference to a pronoun such as he or his, it's always in the singular. And then when you look at the section on the deacons from 8 to 13, it always talks about the deacon in the plural, indicating that there would be one leader and multiple deacons. So, we also have another passage that indicates the connection between The shepherd, the pastor, and the overseer, and that as being identical terms for the same person, is in 1 Peter 2.25, For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And this is a classic Granville Sharp rule. Now you may have heard the name Granville Sharp before. We'll get into it a little more when we get into Ephesians 4:11 and 12. But it is definitely Ephesians 4:11 and 12, where it talks about pastors and teachers. Uh, some have taught that as a Granville Sharp rule. That is erroneous. That does not fit the Granville Sharp rule. Granville Sharp rule only applies to singular nouns not to plural nouns pastors and teachers are plural nouns so that's not granville sharp but um, we'll look at that it gets more technical than that when we look at that passage but this is a classic example of a of the granville sharp rule that when you have two nouns that are not plurals that are not abstract governed by one article and linked with the conjunction and, then they're identical. They're talking about about the same thing for the same person. So here's a classic example of the Granville Sharp rule, meaning that shepherd equals overseer. And so these words are strict synonyms, and they both in this case apply to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the chief shepherd, and who is the overseer, the head of the church. Now, when the Episcopal church form developed, it developed gradually. And as as I talked about last time, you had the development of the monarchical bishop. There's another early writing. Last time I talked about Polycarp, who wrote around 110, talked about... Ignatius, who writes right in that same period, we're not exactly r- clear when he wrote the epistle to the Ephesians, but we do have another early church writing by Clement, who is the bishop of Rome. He writes an epistle to the to Corinth, and it is usually referred to in the uh, apostolic fathers. The the apostles are the apostles, the 11 that are from the time of Jesus to the time they die. The period that comes after them from roughly 90, even though John's still alive, uh, roughly 90 to 100 to about 150 or 160 is called the time of the apostolic fathers. You have men like Ignatius, you have Polycarp, Polycarp was a disciple. He was personally trained by the Apostle John, so these people carried a lot of weight. They were one generation removed from the Apostles. And you have Clement, Clement of Rome, and he writes to Corinth, and he talks about uh, the church at Rome and the church at Corinth are led by a group of Presbyters, who he also calls uh, bishops, and so this is this period where you identify bishop and uh, elder as uh, identical, and this is indicated early on by by Clement. And they also had deacons, as indicated in his writing. But then this, as I pointed out, this changes, and in the first century, you have this development of the, excuse me, second century, the development of this monarchical bishop who is the leader of the church, and he is the man who is the foundational shepherd. Now, there were also elders. They carried out, they assisted him in the oversight of spiritual matters within the congregation and then there were deacons who carried out uh, physical or administrative responsibilities within the congregation. Now, by this time, you've really changed the, the, the format of the church. By the time you get into the early second century, they're moving out of the synagogue, they're moving Uh, into beginning to build some of their own meeting places, their own buildings. The congregations are getting much larger. So they're having to develop uh, ideas and and, uh, policies on how we're going to now administer things. And what I see is a pattern that really starts in Acts 6, and you see it again in Acts 15. There's no direct revelation from the Scripture on this is, you've got an administrative issue, how are you going to handle it? And so there was no direct revelation in Acts 6. God, the Holy Spirit, did not appear to them and say, you need to appoint seven men to help administer uh, the, 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 the money for the widows. They looked at it, they prayed about it, and it what seemed good to them Administratively, they probably thought about how Moses appointed uh, uh, elders to assist him in the leadership of of uh, Israel. Going back to Mount, uh, the time that they were at Mount Sinai, they're probably thinking about that as a as a pattern, and so now they applied that and they came up with a way to to administer things. So uh, it worked for them. Every culture addresses issues of leadership and organization differently. And I believe that God gave us enough information here in terms of leadership to give us a structure, that there need to be those who are spiritually focused in leading the congregation and those who are focusing on the administration. And I believe that there needs to be one man with one singular vision for the congregation. We'll get into that uh, as we go forward. But that's what's what's developing, and it's developing as an application from general description to apply those principles to the situation based on their wisdom, wisdom and maturity from the Scriptures. By the third century, the monarchical bishop becomes strengthened. By then, you have a lot of strange ideas starting to come into the church, and giving authority and responsibilities to the pastor or the bishop that were not part of what was going on in the New Testament. Uh, For example, uh, Cyprian of Carthage uh, gives the bishop authority to administer the forgiveness of sins. Uh, one of the issues that they're dealing with is that you had a persecution that persecution that had arisen in the late second century and so you had a lot of people christians who when when the roman soldiers knocked on the door and were threatening them with martyrdom if they were christians they gave it up now they they lapsed so now after constantine's edict of toleration around, I think it was around 310 or 312, now it's legal to be a Christian, so they want to come back to church. So the church leadership, which was legalistic in this area, I believe, but they're trying to decide, well, do we let these people come back because half the congregation stood firm and they got thrown in the dungeon and they were tortured and these people said, oh, no, I'm not a Christian, and maybe they gave up other Christians and so now they want to return. What kind of forgiveness is there? And so the pastor is given this responsibility for forgiveness. You can see where that eventually develops into the whole confessional thing in Roman Catholic theology later on. But so the power and the authority of the monarchical bishop expands in the third century. And then by the time you get into about 600s to 800s, you see... The development of archbishops and other parts of of the structure that we associate with the Roman Catholic Church, but it's also in the Methodist Church. They they're they're not independent, autonomous congregations. They all come under a, oversight of a of a bishop and an archbishop. You see it in the Anglican Church. Uh, you see it in uh, uh, some other denominations where you have this hierarchy that goes to an authority structure above the local church. So that's the development of the Episcopal form of government, and that dominates until you get to the Reformation. Then we have the second form of government, which is called the Congregationalism. Congregational government, and the Oxford Dictionary of the Christian Church defines Congregationalism this way. Congregationalism is that form of church polity, That means church government. Congregationalism is that form of church polity which rests on the independence and autonomy of each local church. Now, let me just add something. You can have a Presbyterian church, like some of you are familiar with a church here in Houston, Bethel Independent Presbyterian Church. It's an autonomous Presbyterian government. It has elders and deacons, but it is autonomous. It is not member of a higher authority. It is an independent, autonomous church. That is often what was met in English church history when they have the the splits between the Congregationalists and the uh, Presbyterians. Presbyterians had a hierarchy that went beyond the local church. Congregationalists had no external hierarchy but they both had elders and deacons, okay? They, they were congregationalists, but they weren't necessarily Baptists. We'll talk a little bit about the rise and development of Baptist polity here in just a minute. So when we look at this, we see the rise of congregationalism in English church history. And Congregationalism develops in two streams. One is within the, uh, what I'll call the Presbyterian stream, because as I just pointed out, you had those that had a hierarchy beyond the church. They were called Presbyterian. Those that didn't were called Congregationalists because they emphasized an autonomy. But then you had another stream that came out of the Reformation. Remember, the Reformation initially starts off in national church churches, so that you have, in Germany, you have Martin Luther, who's the great reformer, and you have the development of the German Lutheran Church. Lutheranism expands and is taken into the Scandinavian countries, and so Scandinavian countries developed... Uh, Swedish lutheran norwegian lutheran D- Danish Lutheran churches you also had Lutheran churches develop in other national but it's always identified within that that entity that's why when you have the founding of the of of America you start you had swedish lutherans and danish lutherans and all kinds of other lutherans national lutheran churches come to america and now what do you have you don't just have one lutheran church you have all these different ethnic lutheran churches and so that's why america has so many more denominations than anybody else is because we 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 had this this flow that came from all these different countries in the 1500s and especially the 1600s and the colonization of America. Now, in the so you had the Lutheran stream. Then you had, the in the Reform stream, you have two groups. You had the French-Swiss Reformation. That's led by Calvin, and he is hired by the elders of the church at Geneva. A lot that is pinned on Calvin is not Calvin's personal fault because Calvin, and this is why I think this form of an elder government is not good. Calvin was under the authority of the elders so that they overrode his decisions. And I think that's a problem because if one man is the pastor, he's given a vision by God for his ministry, the exercise of his gift, and the local church. And as long as he is not leading them into some kind of false doctrine or some kind of heresy, He's the man whose vision you follow. You can't have 15 visions or 10 visions or five visions leading a company or leading a congregation because they become competitive. And then you have problems. I know of one congregation here in Houston that had a pastor for, uh, I think, at least uh, 30 years. And he was an outstanding pastor, teacher, teacher. He had his master's and doctorate from Dallas Seminary. And the elders had a vision for that church that they wanted to be a mega church like Second Baptist. And so they wanted to get involved in a large building program, and they wanted to do this, and they wanted to do that. And he did not agree. That was not his understanding of how the church should operate. He was a man of great integrity, and so he took them through their building programs. But when that was finished, he retired and moved out of state as far as he could get from that church. You know who I'm talking about. Okay, and that church has had three pastors, two or three pastors since then. It's been a real problem because you have elders who see the pastor as either one of them or under their authority And so you have this competition of vision. And I think that is an unworkable situation. I've seen that break down numerous times. So, but that's, we'll get back to talking about elders uh, later on. So in congregational uh, government, you have the, also I talked about the German Swiss, or excuse me, I talked about Luther, I talked about the French Swiss, and then you had the German Swiss. Uh, Reformation, which was under Oax Zwingli in Zurich. And he; those two merged together to be the umbrella or the stream of Reformed churches. So that impacts the Anglican Church, because under the reign of Bloody Mary, when all the Protestants are being burned at the stake, the leadership of the English Church left and went to Geneva to go to seminary. When they came back, they brought all of Calvin's ideas back to England. You had John Knox, the Scottish Reformation, which is Presbyterian. And they had their leaders that were also trained at Geneva. And the German Swiss got trained there at Geneva. So that becomes, you have Dutch Reformed, you have the Huguenots in in France, they're French Calvinists, they're French Reformed. You have Dutch Reformed. You get the development of the German Reformed Church, the Swiss Reformed Church. All of those are roughly are Presbyterian with a an hierarchy, and then within that in England you develop the Presbyterian Congregational, I mean the Congregational government with elder rule. Then you have the Anabaptists, and the Anabaptists started uh, really in in Zurich, You had men like uh, George Blaurock, Felix Mann, others that were there, and they came to Baptist convictions. Now, what that means is they came to understand that that infant sprinkling didn't do anything for them spiritually, that that was something that was introduced in the early church and when you had this unification of the church and the state from the time of, um, uh, of, of the, what 315, when you have the, the merger, the legalization of the church under Constantine in Rome, you know, becoming a member of the state and becoming a member of the church, the same thing. So if you're going to reject your membership in the church, that's a political statement you've become a traitor to this nation. That's what happens when you have this church-state unification. So under under Zwingli, uh, these guys come to uh, uh, an understanding that baptism only counts once you've expressed your faith in Christ. And so you had to be baptized again. That's what anabaptism means, is to be baptized a second time. And so you had the rise of various anabaptist movements. Some were quite crazy, and uh, th- had a lot of problems. You had Anabaptist groups in Holland came rise from, you had know, Simon Minow, who gave rise to the Mennonites, uh, the Amish or break off from that group. You have German German Anabaptists. You have Swiss Anabaptists. But but in England, you get the development of the uh, Baptist movement, and it is congregational. In uh, fifteen fifty there 's evidence of men and women coming together separated from the state church okay they 're not going to be anglican they 're going to be separated uh, from the national church, and so they are called separatists. Separatists were different from Puritans now whatever you 've learned about Puritans, unless you learned it from me, is wrong. What what the culture thinks of as Puritan is really Victorian, okay? Um, Prince Albert was a prude, okay? And Victorian prudery became identified with Puritanism. But Puritans loved to play cards. They loved to go bowling. They loved to drink beer. Um, but what they wanted to do was not leave the Anglican church but to purify it of any elements of Roman Catholicism. That's why they're called Puritans, okay? They want to purify the church. Separatists left the church. They want to be biblical. They're independent. They're autonomous. And so one of the first ones was a man named uh, Robert Brown, who in 1582 wrote a book called, I love the their, their titles are longer than some books today. A book which showeth the life and manner of all true Christians. And then he wrote a second one called A Treatise of Reformation Without Tarrying for Any and of the Wickedness of Those Preachers Which Will Not Reform Till the Magistrate Command or Compel Them. There you go. And they get a lot longer than that. So anyhow, but in those books... He emphasized that, quote, the kingdom of God was not to be begun by whole parishes, but rather of the worthiest, no matter how small or few they might be. And so he's emphasizing what he called the gathered church or small, independent, autonomous uh, congregations. He is followed by several others, and he influences one congregation, I believe it was out of Norwich, England, and in the at this time with the persecution, they left England and they went to Holland under under their pastor John Robinson, and they became known to us as the pilgrims. Okay, that's where they came from. They are separatist anabaptists from England. And then they came to America, and they brought that church polity, that independent, autonomous congregationalism, where the congregation determines who chooses the pastor, chooses the leadership, and they are independent of other congregations. Now, how do you think that idea impacted the development of the United States of America? That's where we got our idea, really, of representative Government, Uh, it wasn't. They weren't really a pure democracy. Now, my first church was almost a pure democracy because the 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 nineteen deacons in a church that was about the size of ours didn't want to make any decision that might upset everybody. So every time a difficult decision had to be made, we had to take it to the congregation and vote on it, and that was just crazy. So that is a congregational government that works. Badly works inefficiently and works poorly. But what happened in the development of, um, of the church is you had a, a group that came together, a group of Baptists in 1527 in Germany, who wrote a statement called the Schleitheim Confession, and they said, we are agreed as follows on pastors in the church of God. The pastor in the church of God shall, as Paul has prescribed, be one who out and out has a good report of those who are outside the faith. The office shall be to read, to admonish, and teach, to warn, to discipline, to ban in the church, to lead out in prayer for the advancement of all the brethren and sisters, uh, to lift up the bread when it is to be broken, and in all things to see the care of the body of Christ in order that it may be built up and developed. And the mouth of the slanderer be stopped. The, for them, the pastor was chosen by the congregation. And they went on to say that the one who's chosen by the congregation is to be supported by the congregation so that whoever serves the gospel may, li- may live of the gospel as the Lord ordained. Swiss Brethren and German, our southern German Anabaptists, had small groups with one leader. They weren't very big, but they all had one leader who led them. Uh, That was in southern Germany and Switzerland. In northern Europe, you had a group of Mennonites called the Waterlander Mennonites. They adopted a confession in 1580, and that confession states. that the congregation selects its ministers and, div- and talks about the leaders in the congregation as the teachers, bishops, and deacons. In 1611, in Amsterdam, uh, the same uh, themes are, are reiterated by the group of Anabaptists there in their Declaration of Faith of English People uh, in 1611, and then you have the uh, what happens in uh, the Westminster Confession, the Presbyterian, very famous Presbyterian statement of faith that is that is um, it becomes a standard for the Anglican Church for many years, and its Presbyterian in form of government and it is answered by the separatists in 1658 by a declaration called the Savoy Declaration, uh, which states, These particular churches thus appointed by the authority of Christ and entrusted with power from him for the ends before expressed are each of them as unto those ends the seat of that power. So each of them is each congregation is the seat of that power, which he is pleased to communicate to his saints or subjects in the world so that as such they receive it immediately from him. So Christ is the head of each congregation. Essentially, the officers are appointed by Christ to be chosen and set apart by the church. Okay, so the church determines who the, its leaders are. And at the end, it says they're called pastors, teachers, elders, and deacons. So they have, they have uh, four. Okay, I've already talked about those. Then you have the London Confession of 1644, the Second London Confession of 1677, and these are foundational. If you're, if you're a Baptist, you know all these things. This is where this, or you should know these things. This is a foundation. And then there's a in the United States, there's a confession of the, called the New Hampshire Confession. That's the base, basis for the Southern Baptist Uh, faith and message, which is basically the doctrinal statement. Uh, Although they say they're not a creedal people, it is basically what Southern Baptists believe. It's been revised three or four times since then. And in each of these, there is an emphasis on either elders and deacons or deacons and a pastor, but they all have singular leadership. Ultimately, they are led by one individual who's identified as the pastor. There was one. I read about this a while back. I was going to talk about it tonight. I'll f- probably find it again by next week. But there's one. So you didn't really. You, you, you didn't have the big denominations in this country until you get into about the 60, um Excuse me. 1830s. 1840s. You had regional Baptist associations, and they didn't begin to uh, go beyond their regions until about the 1830s to 1840s. And then the 1850s, they split north and south because northerners didn't want to give their missions money to support a southern pastor or missionary whose family might own slaves. So that happened across the board. Uh, Christian churches, Presbyterian churches, Methodist churches, everybody split north and south, and they didn't remerge. most of them didn't re, re- remerge until you get into the... Um you get into the twentieth century so in but each of these that's the one thing they all have in, in common is that you have either a bishop or an elder as the as the teacher, the leader, and then uh, then deacons so i'm going to break there a stop here because in the next section, I want to start getting into how do we understand. What is meant by this imagery of being a pastor or pastoring? It goes back to the Old Testament. One of the earliest examples we have of using the term for shepherding comes out of Exodus chapter 3. We were just there Tuesday night looking at it in terms of worship, but this is ju- the use of that term uh in terms of shepherding and understanding what that means. Because you can talk to a lot of people, even a lot of what you might think are biblically conservative people, and say, what does it mean to pastor? And, you know, they will come up with a lot of different things that they think pastors ought to do. So everything from the pastor ought to be doing visitation, he ought to be going to the hospital, he ought to be doing this, he ought to be doing that. And it's it's pretty amusing sometimes what churches come up with in terms of responsibilities for pastors. So what essentially is this metaphor that is so important throughout Scripture, and how are we to understand it? So we'll come back and we'll look at that next time. Father, thank you for this time we've had to look at this, to look at our heritage, because we come out of that uh, Anabaptist Baptist stream that has so influenced so many in this in this country, and Father, we are also influenced by the Presbyterian stream for Dallas Seminary, which is a background for much of the teaching that we have, had both elements uh present, and so we are uh sometimes it seems like we're a little conflicted over these things because of this split background but but that's, how, that's our heritage. That's our, our DNA. So, Father, help us as we think through Scripture to see why we do things the way we do. And help us to understand how that works to glorify you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.